Welcome to Unruly, the show about women who are often called shrill, strident, exageradas. I'm Mari C, full-time mama, Latina professor, trying to figure out this espectáculo de mierda insanity in which we're living. That actually means shit show, by the way. Hola, hola, hola. I'm so glad to be back. It's been such a long time. It's been almost a year, but it's just been too much. And the major reason I'm back now, the woman I'm about to introduce, once one of my favorite students, am I allowed to say that? That I have favorite students? Well, it's true. Once one of my favorite students, now a friend, I hope. She called me and asked if we could do this to help alleviate some of the rage that we are feeling. She is the one, the incredible Mariah McDermott. (sighs) I don't think there was anyone better who I could have talked to last Tuesday morning. (laughs) But yeah, you asked me for some words I've been called. I've been referred to as bossy, loud. Uh, I should indicate that I was called loud while using an inside voice and even a bitch more times than I can count. I am a foreigner student and yes, I hope so too, a friend of Dr. C. These days I sell my soul to a very large and unpleasant employer at a job that has no relevance to my degree or future goals. So I'm pretty much an average zillennial. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be just so much fun with the two of us. I love it. Even though this is a terrible, terrible topic. Yeah. We have to do it. I do want to start out our women's show with a shout out to a man. Andres, Andres Herrera, musician, an, an incredible musician. You should check him out on Spotify, Entropy in Motion. Oh, he's also on YouTube, Entropy in Motion. And he has his own podcast called Decibels Deep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You've got us and Decibels Deep. I love it. He has helped me so much. He's been an incredible support system, even though he... You know, I know he doesn't agree with me on a whole lot of things. He has been my hype man. So please go support him too. Entropy in Motion and Decibel Steep. Okay. Uh, you know, it occurred to me that we're talking about this, that you and I both started out our lives in different places than where we are now, right? That's a really kind way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> we... We've come a long way. <laughs> I was two years old when Roe v. Wade was decided. I went to Catholic school. I was in the Newman Club and the Anti-Choice Club in university, my first year pro-life club. And you know, as I became active in other causes, I started realizing that this is not a simple issue. And I started shifting my mindset slowly, but initially with just the idea that someone else's body is just not my fucking business. Yeah. I think, you know, it wasn't all at once for me at all. I was also raised religious. I was raised non-denominational Christian, and I knew all of the pro-life rhetoric and talking points, um, even when I was young. I wasn't very familiar with the other side of the argument. You know, my loved ones even now are MAGA people, my mom and my sisters. 
And we definitely don't see eye to eye, especially on this. But I think eventually I went from pro-life to it's not my business to now very passionately pro-choice. And it took time. Same. Yeah. It looks like we come from, or we took similar trajectories. Yeah. Didn't you tell me that you had signs, like you carried signs? (gasps) Oh, that's right. Yeah. So during uh, Obama, no, this is a funny story. So my mother took me and my sisters to an anti-Obamacare rally. And it was pretty much this group. And I'm sorry, I don't know which group. They were traveling around Denver with like a bus um, to like different grocery store parking lots and like rally areas. And my mom took me and my sisters with signs to like anti-Obamacare. I, I, I don't remember what they say to all of these places. Like all day we went from Northern Denver to like Aurora and then all the way down to Colorado Springs. Like it was, <laughs> yeah, that was my first experience with protesting, sadly enough. <laughs> I appreciate that there was activism though, you know? <laughs> you be- yeah, no, that's true. I, I can't say like, I'm proud of my mom for going out and participating. You know, my parents were both voters and I think it was good that she was out there. Hate what she was there for. <laughs> Hate that we were there too. I didn't, I don't think I enjoyed the day very much. And I think even then I was just kind of like, why are we so mad at this Obama guy? Like what's... <laughs> Like what's I remember his election like my mom would pull me out of school for his inauguration both times she took me out of school and you know the funny part I can't remember if it was the first one or the second one she took me to my grandparents house and they had it on so she took me out of school for it and I ended up watching it anyways that's how conservative and anti-left my mom and my mom's side of the family is so yeah I've come a long ways (laughs) Wow. Well, I get it. I get it. So this is, this is a big issue. Did actually, you're the one who made me look up the video of Elizabeth Warren discussing this with reporters. Yeah. She must've come out of a building in the Capitol area and she was hot. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I really appreciated was how candid she was and just how authentic she was with it. I mean, you can just hear and tell the rage in her voice you know it's either the day after or the following day but she's angry yeah she really fired up the reporters who were (laughs) who were getting a glimpse into it and I'm really glad that it was something that was shared but yeah I think it really was relatable because I mean I'm angry right I'm pissed yeah for sure reassuring to see that some leaders (laughs) It's unfortunate that it's just some, but that some leaders are also just beyond themselves. Yeah. And you know, this isn't that surprising for folks. It's just surprising that we heard about it now. Right. But how did we find out? And they're still not expected to make a ruling on this for a while. So how, how did this happen? So Monday evening, which kind of interesting timing, right after the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I watched an interview with a Politico editor acknowledging that she had the news of this at that dinner, but they were holding on to it, her and a couple of reporters working on it. But in a really extremely rare event, the draft decision was leaked to Politico by an unknown source. And 
you know, it's not all that rare for things to be leaked from the Supreme Court, especially when it comes to Roe v. Wade, which I'll get into, but the entire written decision, which is over 90 pages, written by Justice Alito, was leaked to Politico and published online. Um, And this decision was written back in February, and it has the support of five justices who the source has confirmed they have not changed their mind. And the document has been acknowledged to be legitimate by the Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, who said that an investigation into the leaking will be started, but the document itself is blunt. Perhaps the strongest statement from the document states that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. That was written by Alito. But it's important to acknowledge how important the press is and how significant that this document being linked is because it's providing transparency into what's about to unfold. A fun fact, the original Roe versus Wade decision was also leaked to the press, but no decision draft has ever been leaked. And in 1973, before the formal announcement was made of the decision, a memo from a former Justice Douglas was um, leaked to the press and published concerning the case and its decision. So somewhat of a spoiler, you know, Politico has been applauded for disclosing this document in its entirety with the urgency that they did, unlike the New York Times with their recent coverage of important transcripts and documents about the January 6th coup failed coup, which they waited until they published a book to monetize that information. So a lot going on with this event, but the main takeaways, a draft decision has never been leaked like this. It has been acknowledged as true and none of the justices have changed their minds yet. You know, I saw something too about how folks are outraged about this leak, but somehow not outraged by the fact that Trump just took all of these boxes of documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, that was somehow not a problem. You know, Fox News is on at my mother's house. <laughs> I hear it in the background when I call her. I'm unfortunately familiar with Fox News, but their coverage has been very focused on the leaking of the document instead of the document and its contents itself. And the same goes for plenty of Republican leaders who are more concerned with identifying the source and punishing them over protecting the rights of women that have already been established and are now threatened. Which is kind of interesting because if we look at the history, if we look at the history, (laughs) maybe the anti-choice folks should look at some history. We see or we've been taught that abortion has always been this real hot button issue, but it really hasn't, at least not everywhere. And it wasn't even much of an issue at all among Christians until relatively recently. I mean, if you think about 1500, that's <laughs> relatively recently in terms of the span of human history. And that's what we're talking about the Catholic Church. Until about 1500, the Catholic Church considered unmarried sex or adultery, a worse sin than abortion until 1500. So that's about 1400 years of Christianity, not considering abortion a real big deal, right? So the nuns never taught me that in religion class. And the Puritans who came to settle New England, 
who we were always taught were like really super judgmental. And they were in a whole lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. They really were. But it turns out there were no laws against abortion before the woman felt the first movement. It was called the quickening between about four to five and a half months of pregnancy. Can you imagine life wasn't viewed as having begun before then, before you feel like the first kick, I guess, or for me, it was kind of like a flutter. So that quickening four months to five and a half months, can you imagine? That's when life was thought to have begun. And it was really hard to enforce this law because it was up to the mother to say when she felt the first kick. Imagine that. Right. Leaving something up to the mother. <laughs> you had to trust what you said. <laughs> And this was basically the same law as British common law at the time. So it was the law in the British North American colonies. And abortion actually wasn't all that uncommon. Pregnancy and childbirth is the world of women, midwives who used herbs and roots to induce abortion. Surgical abortions were uncommon, but basically this wasn't a moral issue for these Christian folk. Guess when we started to see the tides turn? Around the mid-1800s, when a few things started happening. Legitimate doctors, meaning men, started to view their profession in more scientific terms. And honestly, they were probably more than a little bit threatened by those midwives who actually did know a thing or two about science, like botany, naturopathy. So the male doctors started to wage an actual campaign against these less formally educated women. And just by coincidence, this is the time when educated upper middle class white women started talking about, well, why the hell can't we vote? Around the same time, the ethnic makeup of the country was changing, especially with increasing immigration. Well, all of these educated white women were having fewer children because they were educated. So now these folks are thinking, we have three reasons, more probably, but there's these major reasons to hurry up and regain some dominance and control over women's bodies. Does any of this sound familiar? Women demanding rights and the fear of, quote unquote, inferior races and nasty immigrants outnumbering the white folks. Sounds familiar. When the backlash came full force, it was from a group of doctors supported by the brand new American Medical Association, who's changed its tune, by the way, and from the Catholic Church, which used the media really well, very, very well. And that all should sound, should sound familiar. They were very determined to criminalize abortion, which they succeeded in doing throughout the U.S. by 1910. There were some exceptions to save a woman's life in, in most states, right? Save a woman's life, that's the most important thing in many states, not all. In 1930, almost 2,700 women, 2,700 women were recorded as having died from abortion in the U.S. So these are back alley abortions. But this is an official number. So how many actually went unrecorded? Right now we're talking about these doctors who felt threatened by midwives, right? This idea we need to control women's bodies. And we're talking about the Catholic church. So maybe you're wondering where the evangelical Protestant Christians were in all this. Well, despite the mythology, they honestly didn't have a whole lot to say about abortion 
as a political cause until 1979. That's six years after the Roe v. Wade decision. Six years. In fact, in 1968, the major evangelical publication even said that abortion was an individual and family issue, right? It wouldn't even use the word sin. Long story short, evangelical leaders were convinced by this conservative activist, Paul Weyrich, that they needed a call to battle against Jimmy Carter's election, re-election for a second term. Abortion sounded a whole lot better than their real purpose to keep a Democrat out of office, which was safeguarding segregation. Mm. Fast forward 1967. So we're going from 1910, right? Abortion was illegal throughout the country. 1967, Colorado was the first state to reform its law to allow abortions, quote, if the pregnant woman's life or physical or mental health were endangered if the fetus would be born with a severe physical or mental defect, or if the pregnancy had resulted from rape or incest, end quote. Twelve other states also changed their laws in a similar way, and four states, Washington, New York, Alaska, and Hawaii, completely repealed their anti-abortion laws by 1972, a whole year before Roe v. Wade. Still, Thousands of women died from botched illegal abortions every year before Roe. Speaking of which, let's talk about Roe, the actual person. Jane Roe was the alias for Norma McCorby, who was a woman, low-income woman from Dallas. She had two kids. There was a documentary that came out in 2020 on FX. I can't find the full video online. Did you ever see it? I didn't. I did know about it. It was really interesting. And it, you know, it didn't romanticize McCorby or Jane Roe at all. It showed her as a human being, which she was, but I can't, I can't find it anymore. I did look for it so that I could tell our listeners where to, to look for it, but she had a really rough life. In 1970, the year I was born, Ms. McCorby became pregnant. Mind you, birth control for married women had only become legal five years earlier. Norma was not married. Birth control for unmarried women wouldn't become legal until 1972 when I was, well, depending on when it was, I would have been one or two. That's for unmarried women. So contraception would have been illegal for her in 1970. So she became pregnant. She wanted to end her pregnancy, but unlike in Colorado and some other states, abortion was completely illegal in Texas, except to save a woman's life. So in 1970, Ms. McCorby, Jane Roe, didn't have the option for a legal abortion. What a lot of people don't know is that she actually did have the baby. So the baby's actually, or the woman she is now is my age. At the same time, there were these lawyers in Texas who were looking to overturn the anti-abortion law. So they needed to put together this legal case. So they learned about McCorby and they met with her and then they filed suit on her behalf against Dallas County District Attorney. Guess what his name was? Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade. And the suit argues that state laws were unconstitutionally vague. And so they constrained Ms. McCorby's 
personal privacy rights guaranteed by the first, fourth, fifth, ninth, and 14th amendments in the constitution. Long story short, the case made its way to the all-male U.S. Supreme Court in 1971. On January 22nd, 1973, the court's opinion was officially released. This was the official release, not the leak. Seven of the nine justices agreed that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution protects the right to terminate a pregnancy before viability. So that's before the fetus can live outside the womb. At this point, all of the state's anti-abortion laws became unconstitutional. And maybe that would have been that, right? That's that. But we're talking about women's bodies here, and there would be an in- inevitable backlash over who should control those bodies. Can I interrupt you really fast? Yeah. I was just having a thought, like, how far we've come. And, you know, like, being so young, I don't know if I could ever realize it truly, but less than 60 years ago, contraception was illegal in places. During my lifetime, contraception was illegal. That... That blows my mind. I, I can't imagine being in such a position, being so vulnerable, you know, and you just expected to be a mother, like the lack of opportunity and the restraint placed on people because they were forced into pregnancy. Yeah, that's the thing. There was absolutely no choice unless, of course, well, abstinence. And we could do a whole other episode on that. How well that doesn't work. Purity culture. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> just... Yeah. So for unmarried couples, it was in 1972, a year after Jane Roe or McCorvey got pregnant. So a year after. And when I was, I, I don't actually have the month when that happened, but I was either one or two years old. This is just such a large and broad issue because how many women were forced into marriages or lifelong commitments and decisions because they didn't have access to things like this. Yep, exactly. exactly. I'm grateful for how far we've come. Yes. And let's demand that we don't go backwards. Yeah. Well, there were a number, I mean, there was backlash, right? There was going to be an inevitable backlash because we're talking about women's bodies and women's bodies need to be controlled, right? There were a number of Supreme Court cases after 1973. There was 1976, 1989. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of those, but one that we absolutely have to talk about because it really plays into the current case is Planned Parenthood v. Casey from 1992. I was in college. And this had to do with the Pennsylvania legislature amending its abortion laws in 1988 and 89. And these were major steps backward from Roe v. Wade. These included 24-hour waiting periods and so-called informed consent. I really remember those terms from college, informed consent, so that women could be talked out of it, informed consent. We're going to talk to you about what an abortion is. We're going to show you some pictures, maybe. We're going to tell you all sorts of things, whether they're true or not, so that you can be informed before you have this procedure. Minors required a parent's consent. And grown-ass women who were married had to demonstrate that she had informed her husband of her intent to terminate. That kind of reminds me of something that's also going around and gaining some attention right now, especially on social media. Um, Women needing their husband's permission, especially if they don't have kids already, to get their tubes tied. Yep, 
Yep. That's really coming out now. These stories that young people are starting to tell about their OGBYNs, telling them no. And it depends on the hospital because private hospitals can absolutely deny you the ability to have your tubes tied. They can absolutely deny you that. They're like, oh, well, you're young. You'll change your mind. That's why the answer is vasectomy because that's more reversible. I'm just saying. Seconded. (laughs) When the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case was argued in front of the Supreme Court, it looked like five of nine justices were going to rule to overturn Roe. Back then in 1992, keep in mind, and this is what gets me, all but one of the justices, eight of nine had been appointed by Republican presidents. But in the end, it was actually Justice White who'd been appointed by Kennedy who voted against upholding Roe and five Republican appointees who made up the majority opinion to uphold Roe. Things have changed, though. The ideological boundaries have really completely changed. So five of the Republican appointees who made up the majority opinion to uphold Roe, sort of, which is why this case is really, really, really important. They used a new measure to decide if state laws restricting abortion were valid. Undue burden. This is the the new yardstick. Undue burden. A, quote, substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability, end quote. Because of this, the court actually upheld most of the Pennsylvania restrictions. But the husband notification requirement was actually considered an undue burden. Like I said previously, this case is crucial to today because what it's about is restricting abortion rights, not banning abortion outright. The question is, how much can you restrict before it's effectively a ban? And that's when we really start to see it is in 1992. How much can you restrict before it's effectively a ban? What is an undue burden. Certainly. I remember last Tuesday when I called you, you talking about the significance and the impact that a president can have after their term even ends. So now with a Democratic controlled House Senate president, it's still like, how is this going to happen? And like I mentioned earlier, it's not that big of a surprise. And it feels like lately, every week, there's a new news update about how abortion is being restricted in different states. You know, states have been gearing up on both sides for the official decision by the Supreme Court, which according to Politico is expected by the end of June. But there is a small chance that a justice could change their opinion before then although it's not expected. And it did happen, like you mentioned. So that could happen. And we still don't know the decision of Justice Roberts, but if, as it currently stands, they do not need him to support it for this to be overturned. And you know, all three of the Democratic appointees have been working on at least one dissent each in response. So that should be interesting when we see that. But it is not looking very good. I think Roberts will vote to uphold Roe. I agree. I think his rhetoric since the leak has suggested that because it is standing and precedent. I don't think that it's in his interest 
Well, like you said, it, it wasn't exactly a surprise, but it's still a shock because like you noted, these rights that women have had are pretty recent. I mean, I know it's my lifetime, which to young folks might not seem all that recent. 1972 might seem like a really long time ago, and it was, but it's still pretty recent. So not surprising, still a shock. Some of these states had already been making some pretty big restrictions. Mississippi, 2018, the Gestational Age Act restricted abortion after 15 weeks. 15 weeks. This made Mississippi the most difficult state at that time for women to get an abortion. So again, this restriction, the abortion had to take place before 15 weeks. Jackson Women's Health, the only licensed abortion facility in the entire state of Mississippi, challenged with a lawsuit in federal district court. And the court placed an injunction on Mississippi to ban it from enforcing the law. Can't enforce this law in Mississippi. There's an injunction. And that ruling held up. Mississippi took it to the Court of Appeals. That held up. And then Mississippi appealed to the Supreme Court, SCOTUS, in June of 2020. This is the case on which Alito's ruling was leaked on May 2nd, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. This is the case we're talking about. It started in Mississippi. And again, what's ultimately at issue is a regulation versus a ban on abortion. States may regulate, according to current law, but SCOTUS has previously ruled against abortion bans if the fetus is not viable outside the womb. Again, back to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992. And you alerted me to this, Mariah, that the governor of Mississippi the other day, I think it was just a couple of days ago, was evading questions about whether women who get an abortion could be charged with murder in the future if Roe is overturned, like Louisiana is trying to do now. I'm waiting to see if there'll be an injunction against Louisiana. The governor of Mississippi says he believes that life begins at conception, but he wouldn't answer any more questions about whether or not that meant banning hormonal contraceptives, IUDs, or Plan B or whether it was okay to charge doctors who perform abortions with murder. Yeah, that's disturbing, downright disturbing. And I don't know, something that has, shouldn't have, but has surprised me. I don't know your experience this past week, Dr. C, but men that I've been in contact with come across this past week uh, don't seem to be concerned. I don't think they realize that this also affects them and how serious this is they they just don't understand or don't care to acknowledge it which is really convenient yeah back on september 1st which is actually my birthday that ended up being a bit of a tough news day we heard about texas and their creation of a law called senate bill 8 that banned abortion after six weeks so extremely restrictive. Many women don't even know that they're pregnant at six weeks. And in addition to this restriction, people in Texas who assist a person having an abortion can be sued under the law. This includes people who might drive someone to their abortion, including Uber drivers. This can include someone who's assisting someone in accessing care, someone giving an abortion after six weeks and some questions come up in Texas which are 
somehow even more concerning. Texas has many bills working their way through the system that could create a database of people who've had an abortion. It could prevent similar, no medication form of abortion after 49 days. The trigger ban, which many states, I think you're going to talk more about that. The minute the Supreme Court makes their decision, it goes into effect. So there's a bill also working its way through that could require Texans to carry non-viable pregnancies to term. So babies that are likely expected, wanted, but are not able to live because of some terrible condition are going to be potentially required to make it through birth and then pass instead of being aborted. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And you're absolutely right too. I wish that there were more men who understood how much this will affect them as well. That does not mean, however, making decisions for women's bodies, which I understand that that's where a lot of controversy is like, oh, well, men impregnate. So therefore they should have, you know, equal say in what happens, but that doesn't translate into what women can do with their bodies because it's, it's an ordeal as someone who's gone through it. And I'm happy that I went through it and I love my child more than anything in this world, but it's, it's an ordeal that no one should be able to tell me or anyone else what that they, they have to undergo. And just the idea that even ectopic pregnancies, which are never viable, we were talking about this in my class the other day and I brought up, I'm like, oh, but wait. And I was kind of being facetious and I'm like, there was one case, it was a miracle child in like 1990 something there were twin implantations in the fallopian tubes, which is what ectopic pregnancies generally are in the fallopian tubes. They are generally 100% unviable because they don't get to the uterus and they kill both the woman, the embryo will never be viable, but it can kill the woman. I've heard, oh, well, that we could take those and implant them into the uterus, which is incredibly invasive, invasive surgery. And I don't even know if that's possible. The treatment for an ectopic pregnancy is abortion. That is how you save the mother. Right. And from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, ectopic pregnancies can cause severe damage to reproductive systems and can prevent fertility or future pregnancies if not treated. Absolutely. It can lead to a woman's death, but if not, absolutely, because you're talking about a fallopian tube, which is absolutely crucial to the reproduction process. So yeah, 100%. I don't understand the logic because there is no logic. Yeah, <laughs> correct. <laughs> well, y'all, that seems like a really good place to end for right now. Mariah and I recorded for about two hours, so we have enough material for a part two, part three, maybe a part four to this Roe v. Wade blockbuster series. I will plug away at editing so I can get you those next parts out real soon. In the meantime, you know what to do. Go rock the world with your beautiful self.